If you've not turned there already, I do ask you to turn to the book of Haggai. This small two-chapter minor prophet, but one that is packed full of hope and grace for us as God's people and for the people that Haggai spoke to as well. This is an interesting little book. In fact, I was excited about studying Haggai this week. And as you'll see here quickly, and even as you saw from the reading with Rob just a minute ago, it's a totally different tone than some of the other books that we've been studying, especially Zephaniah last week. Last week, Zephaniah left us with a vision of God that was rather angry and vengeful, even against his own people. And proclaiming that judgment would fall. And I tried to take us to the understanding of this book that the day of the Lord would come, judgment would come, and we must turn and repent, even as Zephaniah says. Even God's people must consider and not overlook the sin in their life, but be responsive to that. And I tried to show us that Zephaniah is even trying to show these people that this judgment is actually the love of God. It's actually the purifying love of God for his people. And when Babylon was going to come and take them to captivity, that as a result of this captivity, as a result of this day of the Lord's judgment on Israel and Judah, they would emerge as a purified people. And Haggai now stands at the near the end of that exile, at the end of that judgment. And what do we have here? We have a remnant who is emerging as, a, as an obedient and as a purified people. So Haggai is an interesting book. And we're going to look at some of the themes very, very shortly, but I was thinking this week and just about how we as people respond to God's word. And really the focus for our message this morning and the focus of Haggai is simply this. God delights in the obedience of his people. God delights in the obedience of his people. And we're going to see that unfold. Recently, though, I saw a cartoon that depicted um, a dad and a mom standing in probably a living room with three little ones in the room, one running through, one chasing another one, and the other one sitting on the floor screaming. And the caption says this, our computer responds to voice commands, but our kids don't. Sometimes I wonder if that's why we enjoy all these smart devices that we have, these phones, these tablets, these Alexas, or whoever you might name yours. One of the touted benefits of these devices is that they'll listen to your voice and they'll do what you command. They'll give you directions. They will send messages. They'll even write emails. Maybe even some of you college students, you use a dictation service to write your papers, take notes. I think you can even order toothpaste and have it shipped to your house. I mean, these devices are at our command. It gives a sense of power, right? A sense of importance. And even a sense, a small sense of joy when they actually do what we tell them to do, right? Like, play this song, and then it plays the song, and you're like, sweet. Call Kristen, and it calls Kristen. It's great. They're amazing until they don't actually do what you ask them to do, right? Most of us have faced this as well. We've faced the, the embarrassment or the humor or even the frustration when they don't actually respond to your voice command and they don't do what you ask them to do or it does something different and you end up sending a message that's either to the wrong person 
or totally inappropriate to the person you sent it to, or it actually inserted the wrong word for what you said. It's not a good thing when they don't listen and when they don't obey. But don't we, even as humans, get a small sense of delight when we give a command and these devices respond? Parents, you know that as you're seeking to raise your children, you're working on this kind of obedience, right? This first-time obedience, don't delay sort of obedience. And, and we as a church family get to see this in action and we get to endure with you and pray for you as you seek to raise your children this way and teach them this kind of obedience to your words. And then as they grow, you as parents begin to have a real sense of joy when they start to actually obey and listen and respond to this obedience. John, in the New Testament, the apostle, He wrote this in a spiritual sense. He writes this. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. We live in a world and we as humans face this perpetual problem of even in our own spirits of disobeying the voice of God, the command of God, or at the very least delaying our obedience until it's convenience or when we want to do it. But Jesus says this in the Gospels. He says it a couple different ways, but here's a concise statement of how Jesus says this. He says this, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Jesus says, this is my true family. My true family are those who hear my word and obey. God delights in the obedience of his people. The book of Haggai then is fresh air to us. As we've come through hundreds of years of the minor prophets to this point, and the people have heard the prophets, they've heard the word of God, and yet they continue to disobey. They continue not to repent of their sin. They continue in it. They continue to reject the word of God. And Haggai now stands as a breath of fresh air and glimpse of light to us. Haggai's intended response for God's people and for us this morning is that we would obey God's clear commands to bring God glory and to bring God delight and to bring God joy. And in us obeying God and bringing God glory and bringing God delight, we would actually find blessing and delight as well. So let's look at chapter 1. And you heard Rob read that already. And, and really this hits on the main point of the book of Haggai and the, the crux of the matter is this obedience. But the message in these first 15 verses is this, is that Don't delay your obedience to God. Don't delay your obedience to God. So what's the background story here? In verse 1, we have, In the second year of Darius, or Darius, the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Now, the way the book is laid out, there's actually probably four main messages, and they're all marked by these date and times, and they're set about a month apart from one another, except for the last one, which happens on the same day as the third one. But here they are. In the Persian kingdom, in 586, as we've talked about already, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon destroys Jerusalem and takes the exiles away. Then in 539, about, what is that, 40 years later, the Persians come in in Cyrus and they conquer Babylon. And as a result of this, Cyrus the Great then sends about 50,000 exiles back to Jerusalem. He lets them go. 
And as you read Ezra, you would begin to understand that even Cyrus is at the command of God himself. And Cyrus is obedient and being submissive to God of heaven. And he tells them to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. In fact, it's an amazing story. We don't have time to go back and read all six chapters, the first six chapters of Ezra, but I encourage you to do it this week or today and see how God is at work through rulers and kingdoms and all nations to bring his people back and to rebuild this temple. So Cyrus even sends them back with gold and silver from his land. He gives them all the temple instruments that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out several years earlier and the destruction in 586, and he equips them to accomplish and to obey the word, the command of God. So these Jews come back. Now it's about 60 years later in 537, 536 BC, and they start to build. They lay the foundation. But as they're doing it, opposition rises up, both from inside and outside, from surrounding nations and from those that are close. And they stop. They halt. They move on to other things. They give their attention and their interests and their time to their own agenda. And that's what we see laid out in these first 15 verses. And look at it again as Haggai addresses them. In verse 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelti, the governor. Now, just put this in context. So Haggai is the prophet. Zerubbabel is in the descendant, a descendant in the line of the kings of David. And then you also have Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So you have here represented really the entire leadership structure of the people of God at this time. Even in this post-exile time, there's this governor who's a kingly figure. There's a priest. There's a prophet. Verse 3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. He starts with a question. Well, actually, what's first with a statement. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Here's the statement. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, why not? Why not? Why is it not time? What are the excuses? What are they waiting for? Verse 3. So the word of the Lord comes again by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time... For you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? It starts with a statement. It moves to a question. A very powerful rhetorical device to get the people thinking, to get the people moving in the right direction. What's the scenario? Well, it's very clear that as they face this opposition, Ezra tells us they were very fearful. They, the rest of, of chapter 1 tells us that they're even experiencing some kind of financial instability, probably inflation due to taxation. The Persian government is not quite as stable as it once was or should be, will be in the future. Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses, he asks? So if we put this in our language, maybe Haggai would say something like this. Is it, is it really time for you to spend all your time and all your, all your energy going to Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware or Pier 1 or Kirkland's and making your homes as comfortable and as posh as possible while mine sits there. Now, a lot of churches, a lot, my opinion, in my experience, 
many times they take this text. This is when we hear Haggai preach. This is when we hear Nehemiah and Ezra preach, right? When they're facing a building project. And we've got a new building and we have a new parking lot or we have an annex that we want to add. So we're going to bring this text to you as a people and sort of berate you with this text so that you'll give more money to this church so we can build our next building. And there might be a time and place where that's an accurate and helpful application. But I fear that many times we use this and text like it in a legalistic way in the church. Because that doesn't really get at the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this. The people are not obeying the word of God. He has given them a clear command to obey. And, and Haggai is appealing to them. Now, this is where it gets beautiful. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put it in a bag with holes. But, verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Respond. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. What's, what's the motivation that God is appealing to for their obedience? Is it, is it that they would simply get out of this cursing? Is it simply that they would have abundance and overflow with wealth or get more and more comfort? No, the motivation that God is appealing to is simply, will you obey so that my name will be glorified, so that I will find delight in your obedience? It's a beautiful thing. God delights in the obedience of his people. He takes pleasure in it, he says. He is glorified when his people obey. In John 15, Jesus uses a similar language. He says, this is how my father and I am glorified is when my people bear much fruit. When they obey, when they grow when they display God's glory in their lives and it's transformed, this is how the Father and the Son is glorified when the people are bearing fruit and aligning their lives with his word. We, we're going to look at this later, but eventually even this building, you know, God's interest is not primarily just in this building. Because Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament and this is what he's condemned for. He preaches the message that this building is going to be destroyed. Or was he talking about himself? And three days it would be raised again. Or what about in Revelation where he says there will be no temple. Why? Because God himself will be present. There is no need for a temple because the glory of the God, glory of God is here. That's beautiful. See, God, God is most glorified in us, as one pastor says. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Verse 9. So Haggai challenges them. Would you consider your ways? Consider how your life is going to this point. Now, it's been like 20 years now since they returned. 16 since they started the building and, and now it's fallen off time. He says, consider how your life has gone up to this point. Now, consider your ways. Verse 7. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it. Verse 9. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. What is God getting at? 
What is Haggai's message built on? It's built on the reality that back in Exodus, when they were brought out of Egypt, God made a covenant with his people to bless them as they would obey and to curse them as they disobeyed. But the curses were were not meant to cut off the people or to, to reject them, but the curses were meant to be his loving discipline in their life to draw them back to obedience. And now they've come through this exile under the hand of Babylon and they're returning, and here's their response. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealti, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed. Haggai says, consider your life. Consider what you know about the blessing and the promises and the curse of God and consider what it should be. And they obey. They obey. Now look at the connections, though. This is really getting us to the root of the problem. In, in verse 9 and verse 10, it says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. Well, why? Why? Because you busied yourselves with your own interests, his own house. Is not this still our problem today? Is not this what God is calling us to today, to respond to his word? We, we are so busy, right? But what are we busy with? There's a small book that I'd recommend to you. It's written by a, a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, and it's called Crazy Busy. And the title resonates with all, probably all of us. At some point, we've said to somebody, hey, how's life going, man? I'm just crazy busy. I think that's the story. That's the narrative of the American life. And the subtitle of that book is a mercifully short book about a very big problem or something like that. And it is. And as we as Americans, we must consider and we must stop and ask the question, yeah, we are busy people and sometimes we can even be a busy church. But are we actually busy with what God wants us to be busy with? This reminds us of of the story of Mary and Martha. And Jesus, right, comes in. Martha's busy. And Jesus says, but there's, there's just one thing that's important. There's just one thing that's critical. To be with me. To love me. To know me. So we have to stop here and ask the question, what, what are we busy with as a church and as individuals? Are there things in your life where, where you've heard preached or you've heard taught or you've been reading in your scriptures and, and you've seen something that you need to respond to in obedience to God? And you've said, meh, not yet. I know that I need to do that, but not yet. Why? Well, what, what might be your excuse? Um, singles, maybe you're thinking this, the time's not yet come, right? Maybe, maybe when I get married, maybe that's when I'll start living that way. Maybe that's when I'll start making time in the word and prayer a priority because then I'll have to be living with somebody and that'll be helpful because they can hold me accountable. You know, but, but my circumstances just aren't conducive to this right now. Married couples, maybe, maybe your thing is, you know, we don't pray together. We don't actually engage in mission together. We don't actually, you know, reach out to the people. We're really sort of sporadic in attending the worship of God because 
you know, we really don't, we're good. Maybe when we have kids, we'll make that a priority. Or teens. You know, I'm not old enough. I'm, you know, I just don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough ability. Nobody respects me anyways. What are you waiting for? When will the time be right for you to obey the word of God? Which leads me to the other question. What, what is it that God is asking you to obey? I think here's where we have to ask the bigger question. For th- these people, the, the, the point of obedience was building the temple. But what has God been pricking your life? What has God been doing through his spirit in your life to, to you, his people, saying, you need to obey? I'm, I'm waiting to pour out my blessing on you. I'm waiting to, to cause you to thrive and flourish in your Christian life and in your human life. And I'm just waiting for you to obey because this is my promise to you. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Or are we still busy with seeking all of these other things and not seeking First, the kingdom of God. Let me just tell you from my own experience, and I think human experience, it is almost never convenient to obey God. In our anti-God culture and world, there's always something more important and more pressing. It's never convenient for us to obey God. So what are you waiting for? Let me ask you a couple of other questions. I think we may not develop the rest of Haggai this way, but I think it's helpful just for us to stop in these spots and just think about some big ideas, right? So the people respond to the word of God. So how, how are you responding to the word of God in your life? What, what place does the word of God play in your life? Many of you were here with us at Secret Church a couple of Friday nights ago, and, and David Platt challenged us with this idea of, will, will you just give yourself to reading the word four times a week? Is that even a priority, to read it simply four times a week and then respond to it in prayer? What about disciple-making? Those of you who have been saved for a long time who have said, I'm a Christ follower, I'm pursuing God. Well, what place does disciple-making play in your life? This is the great commission. This is the great command. To love God, love others, make disciples. So how are you responding to that? Are you just saying, man, I don't know enough, I'm not ready? Well, how long have you been in Christ? How long have you been attending church? How long have you been reading the scriptures? When will it be the right time for you to obey? God delights in the obedience of his people. For some of us, it's that idol. It's that thing. It's that desire. It's that career. That's what's consuming us. And we know that God is telling us to to let it go, to turn to him and find our joy and satisfaction in him, to worship him, to give our time and attention and resources to him And not to this other thing, whatever it might be, but you keep holding on. Why are you delaying? And what about your time as you look through your week? 
How are you using it? How are you investing it? How are you deliberately giving yourself and your life to the intentional obedience to God and his word? What has Christ called you to do? And what about your money? It may not be the primary application of this text, but maybe that is something that God is doing through this text in this church. Maybe you said, um, you know, maybe when I make more, maybe when I get another job, that's when I'll start giving and worshiping through my gifts to the church, to, to empower the church to accomplish mission, to send missionaries overseas, to, to have the resources to start good news clubs or, or to invest in other local mission opportunities. Man, maybe, maybe not yet, right? Maybe when I make more or I'm wealthier. Did you see the situation here? They're not necessarily the richest people in the world. They're still living under the oppressive uh, regime of another nation. They're not totally free. But God still asks them to obey. So where are you in some of those questions? But even here, it would be fitting for me to ask this one as well. What about you who maybe don't even claim to be a Christian, or maybe you've been wrestling with whether or not you are a true believer in Jesus? You're hearing the gospel. You've heard about the cross of Christ. Christ has called you. You're hearing the word. Come to me. Repent. Believe. Turn from your sin and believe. Why are you delaying turning to Christ? Teen, are you really convinced that this life has more to offer you and is more satisfying than Christ? You just read, you just see the the story of Haggai. You see how God works with these people and how really his design is that human flourishing and human joy will only come as we are in right relationship with him, as we are rightly aligning our lives with him and obeying uh, the commands of God. That's really a sub-theme of Haggai, that human flourishing will only come when we are aligning our lives with the commands of God. So unbeliever... Will you believe? Why are you delaying your response to Christ? And but verse 12, it's so beautiful. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. God desires to bring him glory by responding in obedience to his word. But then verses 13 and 15, and here's where the theology of the book just opens up wide. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And here has how the Lord now responds, if we could say it this way. Here's how the, the Lord is silently at work behind the scenes. And now Haggai makes it explicit to us. He says this, Haggai, to the people. God says, I am with you. And the Lord stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And as God stirs up their spirit, as the spirit of God works in the lives of these people, of his people, they respond. And here's the work of God. As he pours out his presence on us, as he is with us, he empowers us to believe. So God's empowering presence is enough for us to believe and to respond. 
We really don't need anything else. We don't need the perfect circumstances. We don't need our circumstances to change. We don't need our life, something drastic to happen. We just need the presence of God in our life to empower us and to compel us to obey. And that's what happens. And their response, verse 13, 15, and the people come and they worked on the house of the Lord, their God. On the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. See, here's what happens. Here's what happens when God shows up with his people. Here's what happens when God embraces his presence. This is what happens when, when the people of God begin to respond to the word of God in obedience. And just a small step in the right direction. Say, we will, all right, we're going to obey. Whatever it is you're asking us to do, we're going to obey. We're going to do it. And in this case, it was the building of the temple. And they take a step in that direction, and God comes, and he stirs up the spirit of God's people together. And they begin to work. What a beautiful picture. They begin to work. And it's because of God's empowering presence in their lives. Christian, we have not just the emanating presence of God as he was with his people in the Old Testament. We have the indwelling presence of God through his spirit. So what excuse do we have to not obey, to not work, to not pursue the things of God. Haggai says over and over again, this is the message, I am with you to the people of God. I am with you. So don't fear. Don't delay. Even if opposition comes, even if you're afraid, even if you don't know exactly how to act, just obey. For I'm with you. I'm with you. Then we look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, and here's a very interesting development in the story. In fact, the background to this, I'm going to read to you from Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and through 13. So as the people respond, they begin to build, they begin to work. But here's what happens. So I'm going to read from Ezra. So listen, and then we'll read Haggai 2, 1 to 9. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment with their trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, they took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. So they're all together praising God. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, in Ezra 3, verse 12, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, the temple of Solomon, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Verse 13 in Ezra. This is, this is an interesting observation. But no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Why? Because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. So what do we have? We have this newer generation, this younger generation, this remnant generation with the older generation. And the older generation is looking at the foundation and they're weeping because it's not going to compare at all to the human glory of the previous temple. But the younger generation is just thrilled that they're obeying God and they're seeing progress and the temple is now going to be built and God is rejoicing in this and we have this great noise come up from the people. 
one of sadness, one of rejoicing, and it begins to mix. So here's Haggai's words. In the seventh month, chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. You guys picking up that he keeps repeating their names over and over again? Because I have to read them over again for you? And I'm getting tongue twisted? Why is that? Haggai wants us, and God wants us to see that this is the whole people. This is everybody, from the leaders on down. And the leaders are being challenged in how they're responding to the word of God as well. And the leaders are leading in this, and they're doing it well, and they're leading it together in unity. And the people are responding to that kind of leadership. So verse 3, here's the prophecy, or here's the message. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Can I get a raise of hands? Who's here that's seen that? How do you see it now? As you look back, and as you look here, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And I think there might be a dual purpose here. I think Haggai is going to be challenging them, saying, look, I know that it's not like the Temple of Solomon, but how do you see it? Are you seeing it just through human eyes? And now what you're seeing happen today, are you seeing that just through human eyes, physical eyes, earthly eyes, or how are you going to view this whole situation? And here's the challenge. Verse 4, yet now be strong. And who does he address? The governor. Oh, this is Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong. And who does he address? The high priest, Joshua. Be strong. And who does he address? All you people. Come together. Realize that this is, this is what God is asking you here and now. Now obey and come together in unity to, to work. Together. To display God's glory, to magnify his name in the nations, and to build this temple. And then he goes on in verse 5, or verse 4. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. There it is again. I am with you. The empowering presence of God, I am with you. So be strong. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. So don't fear. Work. I am with you. Fear Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill the house of glory, says the Lord of hosts. And the reality is that had already been happening. He had already been displaying his might and his majesty in the nations, even with the Persians giving him gold and silver, tons of it, to come and to furnish the, the temple. But he says, I will do it again. And I'm going to bring in the glories of the nations to fill this house with glory. Verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about the resources to get this done. Just obey. Rise up as a people. I'm with you and obey. Be on mission. Make disciples. Say no to sin. Cut out the idols of your life and the idols of our local church and move forward in obedience to the word of God. Because this is all we have. 
Verse ten, uh, 9. And here's, here's the hope. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, of course, we're looking forward and we're looking, we're looking forward from this text and we're looking backwards from our place in history through this text and we see what Haggai and what God is speaking of. This is the temple where Jesus will walk. This is the temple where Jesus will enter in and he's going to cleanse it, so to speak. And that, this is the temple where the, the veil is going to be torn. And this is the temple where true reconciliation between the nations is going to happen and true reconciliation between God and humanity is going to happen because Jesus is going to show up and he is going to bring peace to the nations. Both in his first coming through his death and resurrection and in his second coming through his final and full restoration. So, so Haggai, in the second message in chapter 2, really challenges this older generation, these that are 70 and up, which he might have even been a part of. These elderly people are speaking unfavorable comparisons of this temple to Solomon's. They're somewhat caught in what we would call the idolatry of the past, you know, the good old days. C.S. Lewis says this, there are far greater things ahead than any we've left behind. And that is a true theological statement, right? What are we looking forward to? Are we looking to a lesser kingdom? Are we looking to a lesser temple? Are we looking to a lesser understanding of who Jesus is when he returns and the new creation and the new heavens? Or, or have we bought into the idolatry and the lie that this is as good as it gets? I hope not. Haggai reminds them of God's covenant promises and he pushes their attention forward to what God is going to do. He pushes them forward in expectation and anticipation. Sometimes you hear pastors say, you know, I am excited about living in this generation. And that should be true for us. But here's why. Because we have the truth. We have the hope of the gospel. Not because everything is getting better and better in this life, but because we have the very word of truth to speak into the darkness. That the greater glory of God is going to be revealed through the temple of Jesus Christ himself and through the temple we his people. And Haggai compels him to obey. Verse 10, chapter 2. On the 24th day of this Ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet again. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. He turns to the priest, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answers and said, no. There's somewhat of a parable here going on. This holiness is not transferred from one item to a third-party item. Verse 13. So then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer here is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Okay, so he gives, lays out this, this uh, parable, and he says, here's the situation. Here's what's going on with these people. This unfinished temple, this disobedience, it's sort of like the elephant in the room, so to speak, is a dead corpse. And because they're not obeying my clear commands of Scripture, 
It's impossible for them to be holy and to be righteous and be clean and to make any difference. And in fact, just because they obey and just because they build the temple, that doesn't make them holy either. Something else is required. They, they need some kind of total transformation in their desires and in their being. Who they are. So verse 15, now then, consider from this day forward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to the wine, that to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Okay, so here's the past situation. He says, consider this. Consider this. We need a category for this, that there is loving discipline in the lives of God's people, not all difficulty is, is chastisement for disobedience, but there must be a category for chastisement and discipline of, of God for our disobedience. We have to have a category for that. Hebrews tells us this. So Haggai says, this is what it was like. This is why God was acting this way towards his people, because of your disobedience. Verse 18. So now, though, consider from this day forward... Now that your desires, now that my spirit has come in and transformed you, and you're going to obey and work, now consider this moving forward from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider this, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. See, our obedience to God's word is a means for God's glory to be revealed. God delights in the obedience of his people. And here in these last verses from, from 10 all the way down to the end of the book, really what we're seeing here is an obedience. Our obedience to God's word marks a total transformation of life. It, Paul would say it this way in the New Testament. Once you were in darkness, kingdom of darkness. Now you've been transferred into the kingdom of light. Once you were slaves of sin, and now you're slaves of righteousness. This has been a total transformation of life from the inside out. Paul would say, this is why God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's going to give you the desires to do it, and he's going to give you the ability to obey. Our obedience is reflective of this total transformation that's taken place. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God. We have the presence of God indwelling us and empowering us and moving us forward in obedience. The last section, verses 20 to 23 of chapter 2, is a forward look, a forward glance at how God is going to restore all things, how the Messiah is going to come, the ruler of David is going to sit on the throne and restore the kingdom of his people. For there is chosen ones. Brothers and sisters, the message of Haggai is a simple one, and it's one that's full of hope. God delights in the obedience of his people, and the call to us today is simply to ask, stop and consider and ask, are we delighting in God and in his glory, and are we obeying? as a church, and as individuals. Let's pray.